Welcome to episode 28 of the Talent Healthy Podcast. We'll be talking about scaling your backend. Hosted by Jared Brown, my co-host, Brandon Corbin, and tonight we're joined by Chris Zelenek. Before we get into what you do, Chris, and your background, let's talk about what we're drinking. And I'll start with you, Chris. I'm, I'm kind of excited. I don't even have any clue what you're drinking during this podcast. I'm actually drinking a, a Sun King Isis. It's their uh, it's their double IPA, um, and it's uh, it's pretty awesome actually. It's out of a can, but uh, I'm I'm not I'm not too much of a, a snob about that stuff. It's it's really delicious. That's that's very cool. Sun King's been represented on this podcast a few times. It's just good beer, indeed. Uh, and actually, uh, the last time we hung out, Chris, I didn't realize it, but you're kind of a connoisseur of sorts of craft beers, right? I, I like that a lot better than alcoholic. That sounds a lot better. To me. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I actually I love uh, I love craft beer. I'm a I'm a bit of a hobbyist brewer as well. Um, both my wife and I try to try to make uh, beer and wine and cider when we have time. What was the last one that you made, or the last one that turned out really good? Oh, that was a Russian Imperial that I made. It was fun. I got a, a huge, uh, a huge container of liquid malt extract and just put way too much into the into this into the stout, and it turned out delicious. Uh, it was it was tough. It like it was tough to decide whether or not I wanted to drink it or make brownies with it because the brownies were just awesome too. Nice. But, so, are you the type of home brewer that likes to you bottle it all up and you wait and let it age and like carefully drink one bottle here or there, or are you very anxious, like, you know, drink it down like the first couple of weeks of doing it? I like beer too much. Um, I, I drink it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a saver by any means. Um, I, I hoard my homebrew. And it's, I, I, I respect like the that man. opposite. Probably to <laughs> a fault because I'll still, I'll have like six bottles and it's been three months. You know, I still have six bottles left and they're past their prime already. But, oh man. Yeah, I'll, like somebody comes over and they actually like craft beer. I'm like, shh, come down here. I'll give you one of them. Like, these are precious. <laughs> I don't give these to anybody. <laughs> I won't give so, them to Brandon because Brandon wouldn't appreciate them. No, I wouldn't. How, how many do you have right now? Just out of curiosity. How many do you have? <laughs> See, the, it kind of bounces out because I almost never homebrew. I've done it like three times. So ah. the three times I did it, I, I, I still have bottles from each of them and two of the homebrewers i don't think anybody would want to drink the bottles that are left uh, yeah. but anyway before we turn this into a beer podcast let's steer it over to brandon and talk about some <laughs> wine uh i'm having i think it's called from the moon or over the moon or something it's a, uh, a cabernet no no it's a sauvignon blanc and it tasted like piss <laughs> it's disgusting um it's just how you like it right Oh God, no! It's awful. I mean, and it, it's got that like rubber balloon flavor, and I'm not a big fan of the rubber balloon flavor, hmm. so it's not it's not very good. That does not sound good. I nope. I actually tried. I got my my wife who is seven months pregnant now. I got her a bottle of alcohol removed wine. Have you guys heard of this? No. Ooh, what's the point of that? Well, she had this wine and canvas thing that she went to a couple nights ago. And so I got her that so she could feel cool drinking her wine with all the other girls that were, you know, painting and drinking wine at this thing. And the first problem was that it's like a cash bar, so they wouldn't let you bring your own stuff. So she didn't get to drink any of it. But she, we tried it tonight, and they it originally had alcohol in it, and somehow they remove it out so it has less than 0.1% alcohol in it. 
And it does not taste like wine at all. It's such a bizarre type of sour flavor to this thing. It was not good at all. Huh. But, uh, yeah, if you ever need alcohol-removed wine, the duels <laughs> of wine, the, no. they have it. No. I think you abused the word need there. Yeah. <laughs> if you just crave wine and cannot have alcohol, <laughs> then you need help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just having a shock top tonight, a Belgian white. Fairly, What's that? I don't know, Chris. Is this? I don't think this qualifies as a craft beer shock top. I think that comes from Anheuser Busch. I, th- I think one of the larger one of the larger breweries makes it. For but, sure. Um, I think I've had it before, and it's it's not a bad beer. It's by not any bad. Means. It's pretty good. It's got like a more full flavor than a Blue Moon. I like nice. it. So, all right, let's get into, I'm really curious, and I'm sure that I've heard parts of the story before, but I really want to get this whole story on the podcast of how you got started, Chris, because you really have done some fascinating things, but I'm really curious to start at the beginning and and find out how did you get interested in computers? What was your first computer? Oh, man, Uh, the first computer was an Apple IIc, actually, Um, and that was way back when. I'd say that uh, it, it was... It wasn't really mine. My mom was a science teacher, so she, uh, you know, she also did the, the computer uh, computer classes, and awesome. so it was kind of, kind of our families because I was always around, you know, at, at school afterwards, and uh, learned how to mess around with logo and, and learn a little bit of algebra playing around an Apple IIc when I was a little kid, and uh, from then on, like it was our, our first real computer. The first computer that I did any serious programming on was a. It was a 486 DX2 with you know the the math floating point coprocessor yeah. and a turbo button prominently displayed on the front. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the first real computer that we owned, and that was uh, that was how I got into to doing any anything that I think approaches what I would call programming now. So as we've talked and we've asked this question to a couple of the people that have been on the podcast, and what I find fascinating is hearing that aha moment of some program that they made. And when they saw something like, did you ever have that moment where you saw something happen on screen? You knew you programmed and it's like, damn, like I, I made the computer do that. Was there that type of a moment or was it more of like, I was just always doing computers. Um, actually it's, it's a little bit embarrassing to say that the, uh, the first thing that really kind of actually kicked things into place was, uh, uh, I'd been doing programming, but I don't think I really understood programming to a degree until, um, I hate to admit this in public. Um, I actually I was struggling with understanding a for loop uh, when I was a, I was a teenager and I was trying to get it and I was working at a like a part time job and uh, the people that I was working for at the time, you know they they'd give me the task to to program this thing and I said I, I really you know, I, I do small stuff for you guys I just do a little thing but I, I don't understand this for loop thing I know this sounds this sounds ridiculous to tell you guys but. Um, and the guy that's uh, the guy that was overseeing me just kind of he put it very succinctly. He was like, "Well, you have to understand it because it's your job, you know. Like you, you have to do this, and otherwise, there's no point in having you here." And th- this is not the heartwarming story you're looking for. And no, this uh, is great. I love it. <laughs> so uh, he told me that, and then that night, I, it, it was like everything clicked. Like that that moment of, of duress, you know, when it's like you have to do this. It was like, oh, oh shit. Yeah, okay, I get that. Why not? Why did I ever have problems with this? And, and 
and then it was like, well, fuck, if I can understand that, I can, I can do any of this other stuff. If I can get a for loop, everything else is accomplishable. Absolutely. Uh, Once you there, that needs to be a t-shirt. <laughs> There's a t-shirt right there. <laughs> That's cool. So then that just began a, a lifelong passion of programming. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, I'd say so. I mean, it, it certainly if, if, if any of your listeners remember that, that, that brief period in time and the, and the late nineties when um, cyberpunk was cool and you could be 18 and know just enough to, to code a website and make millions of dollars. If you remember that, that heady moment when that, that thing existed, that, that certainly acted as fuel to the fire of why programming was awesome, you know? Right. So the dot-com bubble as well, maybe. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like there was a, there's a site years ago that I worked on. It was called q3seek.com. That was one of the first, uh, not one of the first, it was one of many gaming websites that came out uh, during the dot-com bubble. And uh, we had, we'd actually inched ever closer to being acquired, and I was 18, and I'd written the forums and the news site and everything in PHP way back when. Wow. And, we, you know, an 18-year-old with working with a, a, a business partner up in Canada, we were talking about getting acquired and all these grand plans to, uh, you know, to, to take advantage of, of, of that, the time as it was. And and then of course everything fell through. Like that that was uh, the the me the day that we had the meeting with the investors was probably a week or two after the news had universally agreed that the, the bubble had burst, you know. <laughs> so what happened to the site after that? Oh I went to college. So <laughs> so the site pretty much I think just uh it went to somebody else to work on for a while and then gaming websites in general and of any any dot com website for a period of time it it was not economically feasible to to think that you could uh you could make a, a fortune off of it you could scrape by on it on on a on a content site like that let's let's dive into that period of time so you conquer the for loop as a teenager <laughs> and by yes. by eighteen you're writing forum software for a fairly popular site it sounds like yeah, how, yeah so what happened in between there kind of walk me through how how you got from point a to point b oh it was a uh, it was a lot actually like um the the for loop thing uh, was actually it was writing in frontier script um frontier script was uh um if you've heard of dave weiner actually absolutely and it, yeah of scripting um, news yeah, yeah. He he had written this thing way back when called uh, Frontier, which was like a, it was an integrated database slash um, content management slash you could you could send it to the web so you could push out blog posts or things like yeah, that. It had like a cool desert theme, like cacti and stuff. Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. And the the place I was working at the time was uh, uh they were they had to be like one of three places in the world that was using old Mac OS classic servers. So you know, of so, course, yeah, yeah. The, the if you if any if anybody anybody's ever heard of webstar then they may feel my pain from that time it's a <laughs> <laughs> it's an old mac os classic web server that uh that just made no no sense whatsoever <laughs> but um i i went was working on frontier script and kind of cut my teeth on that and then um did you choose that or was that a product of the company you were working for how'd you get on frontier I was uh, the reason that we had macOS Classic in the first place was the one of the people that was that owned the company loved Macintoshes, um, probably beyond the point of of logic, uh, just because we were using them as as web servers. Um, but uh, because we had that, and because Frontier was ostensibly a, a good 
a good platform to actually uh, publish content on for, for Mac OS Classic. That's what we had to do. Um, and I think that at the time, yeah, now that, I, now that we say this, uh, uh, it was Frontier coupled with FileMaker Pro, if you can oh, imagine. Oh, yeah. wow. No, I, I totally would. That, that's 98, 99? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, good times. It's uh, it's 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 embarrassing to bring up. <laughs> no, this, is, this is the good stuff. So uh, that was it was Frontier and FileMaker Pro that we used to 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 push content, and then uh, from there we we made the technological leap to the to the juggernaut of ASP.NET and Microsoft Access, <laughs> and uh, from there um, we uh, around about that time the the company got introduced to PHP and. Uh, PHP was just awesome. It was, I mean, it certainly it has a bad name for itself now, and and I, I don't think I would, I don't think I would choose to write in it if I had if I had uh, my druthers now. But uh, I, I think that it gets a, a lot of crap now, when at the time it, it had really changed the face of of web programming. You know, a lot of people really created some awesome shit in PHP back then, and it kind of. It changed the face of of programming as a business, I think, in a, in a really cool way that it doesn't necessarily get credit for. Certainly, as a language, it has its words. I mean, what language doesn't? But right. it's uh like that at at the time, like when we uh, when we moved to PHP, that made a huge difference. And that was at that point, I had gone through Frontier onto ASP.NET onto PHP, and so I you know I felt relatively comfortable with databases and stuff, and so took my Tried my hand at uh, working with somebody else to create this forum software and this gaming gaming news site. Very cool. So then, fast fast forward to where you are today, and you you work in a group called Fastest Forward, right? That's right. And we're going to be talking about scaling for most of this podcast here. Uh, and you're a good guy to talk to because. You have worked on a app that many people have probably heard of or even played called Words with Friends. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I'd say one of the one of the I'd, I'd add the qualifier to that that is one of the largest rail sites in the world. I think I, I couldn't say whether or not it's awesome. the largest, but it's one of one of the largest. That's amazing. Like that's got to feel so cool to be able to say that. It is. It really is. <laughs> so, one thing we're not going to be able to get into are exact numbers on words with friends but what i would like to talk about are some of the challenges that at a high level that you've had trying to scale for such a popular app and just just to make it clear you your group has worked on the server side of it and then there's another group that works on the ios development the front end part of the app right I'd I'd say that it was it was relatively free form actually. Um, I'd say many many people worked on many different things, and I would actually add a a, um, a locational qualifier here that there's there's actually a, there's a group here in Indianapolis, the Expected Behavior guys, if you know of them, um, mm-hmm. that are continuing to work with uh, uh, we uh, with words with friends right now. We're no longer working with uh, on that project, but they're actually keeping keeping the site up and and. Uh, and keeping one of the largest rail sites in the world uh, still going, which is pretty awesome. Really cool. But uh, so challenges is, of trying to scale it. Well, we have been talking during the the pre-interview of the the fact that there's these different tracks that you're trying to do all at once. You're trying to scale this thing while developing it. Can you kind of go into that in some detail? Sure. Um, it's 
I, th- I think that like with a site like that and uh, probably with many, many very popular sites, you, you have like three, I think, uh, competing philosophies. Uh, you have the philosophy of refactoring, you have the philosophy of new features and the philosophy of scaling, like the, you know, or the goal of scaling, I should say. Um, and we, we found it was incredibly, you know, it was incredibly hard to balance all those needs correctly all the time. Um, and I, I'm sure that anybody else that's, that's listening to this that has a, you know, that's working with a successful product feels this pain because keeping new features going out, you know, new features don't necessarily just constitute new user-facing features, but new features like uh, fixing bugs, fixing, fixing long-standing bugs sometimes fly directly in the face of actually scaling correctly. Um, you know, you'll, you'll implement a new feature, but the cascade effect of that new feature is, is that you're going to cause more writes going to the database, which in turn causes something that was on the bare edge of actually falling over, suddenly fall over, or you cause more cash pressure. You know, you actually utilize your cash more often just to, to, to implement this new feature. And then what do you do? You know, uh, you have to go back. You have to actually spend more time trying to scale this thing. You de-develop the feature as it were, you know, you actually try to reduce the cost of actually using that thing across the entirety of the code base. And meanwhile, everybody that's working with it needs to actually refactor the code base to, to bring it up to what the current, you know, what the current uh, generally accepted standard of code is going to be on the project. So it's, it's very strange to, to work on, on a, a fast-paced, high-scale project like that because you have three equally important goals that everybody needs to work on. Um, but only, you know, I, I won't even say only one of them. They all, they all have their own, their own drawbacks. But scaling is the drawback that if you don't, if you're not constantly pushing on, uh, on the importance of scaling on a project like that, you know, you, you'll find yourself a week from now, you know, turning away users at the, you know, at the web end. You know, you're, you're shutting down requests. You know, you, you've had downtime. It's the worst of all possible options. But you have to also, you know, do new features and do refactoring and all these things. So it's... It's very much a balancing act that was uh, uh, that I, I appreciate more now after having worked on that project with those guys. What sort of tips would you have for other people to know when to refactor? Is that an ongoing thing, or do you schedule refactoring sessions? How do you handle refactoring? Uh, re- refactoring has generally been, and I'd say through most of the projects that we've worked on, including Words with Friends, refactoring has been a... Um, it's been an effort in recognizing the common sense of what somebody's actually trying to accomplish. Um, there's there's refactoring for the sake of cleaner code, which is is a laudable goal, but sometimes it's counterproductive. Um, cleaner code does not necessarily mean a better app. Cleaner code just means cleaner code by virtue of of the the opinion of the author. Right. And the usually the the best way to actually we found the best way to actually make the judgment of whether or not the refactor is even worthwhile. Is looking at the uh, um, just looking at the, the number of lines added versus removed. Um, it's it sounds slight, slightly trite to say, but you know the if a refactor involves more deleted code than it involves added code, then it's probably a positive refactor. And if it involves more added code, then the the knee jerk response is, is that it's it's done more to uh, more to accommodate somebody's sense of what is correct versus what will actually help the project and in another way it's it's uh less code is better code <laughs> is, is the judgment for whether or not the refactoring is, is going to work out yeah i like that a lot that, that makes it a lot clearer uh when judging how you should do your refactoring 
Very cool. Uh, I remember reading through the years that when dig.com was having trouble scaling and they would introduce a feature that seemed useful to the end user but really had some scaling problems and then it was like this constant act of introducing new features and taking existing features out of sight out of the circulation maybe retooled or just that's never really going to work and you know how do you make that tough decision of i'm gonna we're gonna take this feature out of circulation well in, in the context of, of a product that you own or a product that in, in this case i'll say a product that, that i own right so yeah. we we would make the, the the decision to actually remove the feature based on it's a somewhat pragmatic cost analysis like is how much does it cost us in time to support this feature versus how much it does it cost us in time to provide something else that may that may offer a compromise to the user you know and, and if so we'll cut it you know eat I think on larger sites, it's it's a much more nuanced uh, judgment. I, I don't think you can judge things purely based on cost, because I think that there's a cost that there's a there's a hidden cost in taking away a feature, a significant uh, either whether they're vocally significant or they're monetarily significant. Minority of users actually appreciate um, it's it. It's a tough question to answer, honestly. Right? Do you have like an example? Um, I can give you a great example um, from Instrumental. Um, we actually, when we first started out uh, working on Instrumental, I should qualify. This is uh, this is an app that we're working on for um, uh, for recording metrics on web apps. Uh, we started uh, InstrumentalApp.com. That's right. That's right. InstrumentalApp.com. And uh, when we started out, we actually one of the things we included with uh, the library uh, that that records metrics is an automated. Uh, automated file that tracks your uh, database usage and your uh, front-end requests. Like, we'll actually create metrics for you based on, um, you know, who's hitting a particular endpoint, what's your current database usage. And we were pretty, you know, it worked out relatively well for us in testing. But um, something like that, you know, it works great when you test it with a rack app uh, with Rails 3 or, you know, a rack app with with Rails 2.3 or something like that. And we found that to actually maintain that thing over time, you know, we'd have to, to increase our testing uh, testing coverage for every different Rails app. And then we'd have to start increasing our testing coverage for Sinatra when people actually wanted to use Sinatra. And this thing be, started out simply as a convenience for people who used Rails 3, Rails 2.3. And it began to look like a liability. Um, it began to look like something we'd have to support over time that would provide realistically a very half-assed implementation of what other apps like New Relic already do quite well, and and in that in that case it was it was absolutely just the decision of we, we just need to cut this feature. It's we're providing negligible benefits to the user, and we could do much better on the thing which is our core focus. And it's it's better to cut the feature rather than to to try to provide a you know a halfway implemented feature you know that only works for a certain percentage of our users. Yeah, that's a really good example. What is it about working at scale that is so fun? Like, what do you like about working at scale? I'd say that uh, I, I think the best answer to that is just that it's it's in the realm of actual problems. Um, a lot of the problems that happen at scale, um, 
are similar to a lot of the problems that happen at uh, trying to optimize for like low-level performance. The solutions are by no means similar, but the problems uh, have strong similarities. And that you're uh, you're trying to accommodate high throughput. You're trying to accommodate you know a, a certain certain limitations that are placed on you based on you know how many servers you have. You know what's your write activity. Um, what uh, what sort of user population do you have to support? These are these are actual problems, and they're not um, they're not false problems. Like uh, you know, there's not a library that supports the the feature that I want to use. You know, that's that's sort of a problem, but that's not really a, a computer science problem. That's not that's not the problem that actually uh, uh, that requires heavy thinking on your part. You know, if, if something doesn't exist yet, or if a feature doesn't exist yet, that's those are those are things that definitely require thought to a degree, but not so much as being confronted with a challenge that you need to that you need to surmount. And I think that's that makes working at scale fun, and it's also what makes working at scale dangerous. Is it cool? Also, like, does it seem to validate your work knowing that you have thousands, or, you know, huge audience of people that's causing the need for this scale? Does that help motivate you as well, or is it just the pure computer science? aspect of it oh it, it absolutely motivates you i'd say that it's a uh, motivate might not necessarily be enough uh to describe the feeling scare it's, it's, yes <laughs> rank fear is <laughs> is part of that um the uh there there have been enough times where uh, uh we've been working on a project and we've deployed something and there's been you know it's it's of course the feature is tested. Of course the feature has been vetted by multiple people, and people have code reviewed it. And there's still that that nagging doubt that there was something that you missed, and that's it's it's terrifying when you release it. It's terrifying when you're watching the graphs, watching the uh, watching the servers, making sure that everything goes out correctly, and it's absolutely rewarding when it goes out and and you see the intended result. You know, you see the graphs drop. You see. You see people talking happily about the new feature that, that you were able to implement that had no negative side effect. So it's 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 great and terrifying at the same time. It <laughs> sounds really fun. I've I've not been able to like I don't I've never had the chance to work on something at that level of scale. So I'm just super jealous that you get to do this. It's really cool. Uh, talking about what you were just getting into looking at the graphs when you push something out it reminded me of something i read about etsy.com and how they use stats d to know when things are going something in their latest build is broken so they don't i guess they're not doing extensive testing you know they're doing some testing but not a crazy amount of testing when they push stuff out because they can tell very quickly that when logins are have gone down below an average number that they you know should be higher they can tell very quickly. And that's what you're talking about with your graphs, right? I, I would say yes. Um, I, would, I would add on to that. that I, I'm not sure that you can infer based on the fact that, that uh, Etsy uses graphs to actually ascertain current live application state that they don't have adequate testing. I'd say that, that it's, it's incredibly difficult to have adequate testing when your app is being pressured from, from you know, n number of, of of unknown, you know, unknown, uh, um, I, I'm almost going to say attack points, but, you know, users aren't attacking your app, but it's, it's, it seems like that when you have, when you have millions, million, millions hitting your thing. Um, but, uh, there's just, 
it's hard to get coverage over every case and acknowledging from the outset that you have that your tests represent a small percentage of what your known app surface is means that you can accept that measuring it covers that that that, that hidden portion of your app that app that you're not the part that you that you're not testing due to your own ignorance um you know measuring the measuring those metrics and seeing those things lets you actually have the final guard you know that, that your tests could never capture right and and, and etsy's absolutely right to do that i mean etsy's philosophy of uh <laughs> of graphing something that doesn't move just to make sure that you know is is an absolutely awesome philosophy and something that that, that more people should aspire to in their apps and that's so and they're doing stats d which is what instrumental app is based on is that correct uh sort of an instrumental app actually started out um we uh we actually were using a uh, stats d and graphite on some other projects uh before we created instrumental and um in the course of our using it we just we noticed that there were some some user interface problems. There are some issues with um, its ability to handle throughput um, for StatD. StatD is a is a node process, and it just sits on one core, um, loops on the nodes. Much <laughs> well known event loop um, to, to pull in UDP packets of of metrics, and uh, you know just, just it, it's it has some maybe not necessarily ugly, but not not the best performing characteristics and uh, certainly not the most flexible of characteristics when you get down to the graphite level. SASD is like a proxy to get to graphite and graphite is the part that actually creates your graphs and has all the, the graph generation language. Uh, we found that to be pretty inflexible and, and not very uh, not very friendly for creating, for creating new visualizations of data. And so when we were uh, when we we're using those things we decided that we'd start out using them as a as a data store for a new service uh the, in this case instrumental and we based instrumental sort of on stats d and graphite to start with and then we swapped out the data store and the stats d layer we wrote everything from scratch over again once we started to actually feel some of the problems that stats d and graphite had for for real under heavy heavy usage it's it's really impressive what you guys have done i signed up and got an account there and I, I still have yet to integrate it into one of my projects, but I'm really dying to do that, and I love what you guys are doing. What what makes Instrumental App, because you've talked to me in the past about how Instrumental App can scale really, really to huge volume. Can you go into some of the details of what makes Instrumental App unique in, the, in its ability to scale to a super high ceiling? Sure. Um if you're if if your listeners uh, will bear with me just for a minute, I'm going to talk a little bit about just the concurrency internals. Um, we actually started out um, when we first started working with Instrumental. We had uh, a Ruby process that acted much like Statsd um, to talk to Graphite, and uh, it was a single single threaded Ruby process that used Event Machine. An Event Machine um, for non Ruby programmers is a, is a library that uh, works a lot like the. Uh, um, the event loop that, that Node.js uses. Event machine abstracts away things like ePoll that you, gets used on Linux to uh, uh, to pull uh, the kernel for actually active file descriptors that have something available for you to write. Um, so we're using event machine um, with Ruby, 
And we started to hit uh, we started to hit a scaling problem fairly early on. We brought on a few users. I think we were like four or five users early on, but we had one user that was incredibly high throughput. They were sending us lots and lots of data, and uh, so we we were we noticed that the CPU usage on our collector at that point call our this process the collector it's a lot like Statsd. Our collector uh, was climbing up to 100% um, just in receiving data from, from this small, like ridiculously small number of users for you. So we barely had like, uh, barely had any true load that we thought. Uh, we, you know, we had such a small number of users we had, uh, uh, but we had like such high CPU. We started researching what was going on. And it looked like the main event loop that we had that was actually, um, the event loop was handling incoming data and also writing out to our data store, which at that time was Graphite. Um, and we needed some way to actually take advantage of true concurrency on the application. And the problem was that uh, the Ruby uh, Ruby 1.9, if anybody's familiar with it, is uh, its concurrency is better than Ruby 1.8. Ruby 1.9 actually uh, is able to offer operating system level threads. Um, when you, whenever you instantiate a new thread class in Ruby, you're gonna be getting a kernel thread back as opposed to in Ruby 1.8, you get back a, a virtual thread, a green thread that's scheduled by the Ruby interpreter itself. Um, but even in this case, Ruby 1.9's uh, enhancement to concurrency was by no means uh, enough for us. Um, because in this case, what we want to do is we want to have our main event machine thread that's actually handling the event that's reading in incoming data. And then we'd want to have a separate threads that actually handle reading uh, out to the data store so that we can take advantage of downtime and reading um, or idle time on separate cores to actually write out to our data store. Mm. Um, so what we did in this case was um, we refactored everything um, as, as we are wont to do as crazy computer scientists. <laughs> and uh, we, created, um, we created a new collector that's, uh, that's in fact our current generation of collector that uh, um, we actually have a main event machine thread that, uh, that sits there, a main event machine process that uh, just reads incoming data and turns it into very simple little structs, uh, Ruby structs. And then we actually pass that off to ZeroMQ. Um, ZeroMQ is this fantastic library that we're using that basically abstracts away the idea of a messaging protocol over TCP or Unix sockets or UDP or even um, in-memory uh, communication. It doesn't matter. Um, Zero MQ just lets you deal with the idea of things like, oh, this is uh, this is going to be a, a pub sub type uh, network bro uh, network broadcast, or this is going to be a round robin load balance style communication between one process and many other processes. It's a fantastic library, and what it let us do was actually create a process that starts up, forks itself multiple times to create worker processes. And each of those processes are able to take separate cores on the server. And so we're able to saturate our event machine thread for reading incoming data and then push the work of actually dealing with uh, our data store, which you know, it started out as Graphite. And then right now we're currently actually using MongoDB um, as our data store. And most of our writes are the, the, um, the duress of our writes, the, the idle time suffered by actually waiting for the data store to finish writing is incurred on the workers, but it doesn't actually halt up our main network uh, receiver, in this case, the event machine thread. Now, the cool thing is, is that we, uh, uh, we actually have um, a session kind of in the wings right now. Um, 
that will supplant this current architecture. We, uh, um, well, the, the, the current thing actually works out relatively well. We did some benchmarking. And one of our guys, uh, Elon Miller, actually, he uh, he felt like we we still had a lot more uh, we had a lot more performance that we were getting under some of our stress tests with this this new architecture that we brought in. And so he uh, he stressed like bare bones, like just the bad machine and nothing else. And he was able to I think it was like 10x um, what we're currently able to support, uh, which was just amazing, you know. And we took a look at it. And a lot of our time was actually being eaten up in things like uh, regular expressions and uh, message formatting and a lot of other stuff that's sort of necessary, but not entirely necessary um, in our main process. And he uh, he kind of showed that off to me. And given that I was the person that, uh, that refactored this, this this collection process with ZeroMQ, I, of course, took immediate offense and <laughs> would not allow such a thing to stand. So... Uh, um, after, uh, after we took a look at his thing, um, I went ahead and rewrote the entire thing in C, which was awesome. And uh, now I think our our staged uh, our staged introduction, the thing that we're going to bring in once we start to, to encounter a little bit of uh, performance problems, will handle somewhere to the level of fifty to a hundred times um, uh, what we're currently able to support, which is is pretty awesome. That's crazy. Um, it's it's great. It's it's fun to work and see when you can actually uh, you can just do things like you know what um, there's you know clearly there's no garbage collection and let's just go ahead and pre-allocate everything. You know, we we will never incur the cost of of memory allocation. We'll never we'll never even deal with that. We'll, strings, fuck them. We don't care. You know we're <laughs> we're gonna look up we're gonna look up arbitrary indexes and thing and that'll be enough and. It's incredibly, incredibly fast. I, I know for anybody that's programmed C and to hear me say, oh, it's so much faster than Ruby, it's nice. That, that sounds so obvious, but man, it's nice to actually write things that get crazy fast. <laughs> yeah, that, you bring up a good point. That is something I was wondering as you started talking about this is that you're trying to create a backend that can scale and you know, you really like to scale to the levels you're talking about. Why, why ever do it in Ruby? Was it... Like if you had to do it again, would you start it in Ruby again? Was it just much faster to get going? Uh, yes, I would actually do it in Ruby um, because the the thing I add to this discussion is is that you know while while the thing that we've got waiting and the reason that it's waiting is it's not fully tested yet and it has it has a you know it's it's functionally ready but hasn't been tested. Uh, the reason that we didn't do it that way is because it took time to get here and. If we had started from the standpoint of let's write the fastest, most scalable thing when we first started working on this project, we would have killed so much time that we could have been spending on writing the the user reset password page, you know, um, right. adding documentation for the agent. Uh, so many, so many things are equally as important when it comes to the success of the business and the experience of the user. Um, you know, it's scalability. It's an entirely a laudable goal, like for for us to you know to seek. But equally important is as a positive user experience and and our ability to to lessen the the gamble of of spending you know a week or two in in, in software development that might not even be used. 
That's a good point. And you guys have a nice interface. Uh, it's a good experience using it. Very good documentation as well. Thank you. Are you guys using Bootstrap on the app side? We are. We actually we're using Bootstrap on on the app. Uh, we're, we're actually in the middle of a bit of a longer user interface factor right now, where we're switching over to Bootstrap 2.0, which is just mm-hmm. awesome. awesome. <laughs> it's I I hate to say it. I I love Bootstrap. I feel incredibly guilty like uh, somebody using the app, they're going to see that black navigation bar. And it's just like, yeah, <laughs> we're programmers, you know, it's sometimes yeah. you just got to. You know what? Here, here's a little trick. All you need to do is spend about 10 minutes and rechange the color of that nav bar. And most people won't even notice. No, you're right. You're right. We should do that. I, I think maybe, maybe some pastel blue is headed, headed the way yeah. of current <laughs> instrumental users. <laughs> So you brought up stress testing and Eli doing stress testing on the collector. And yeah. that's something I had wanted to get to. So that was a great segue. Is stress testing worthwhile? Do you guys do that? You had mentioned before that the only true test is when you push it to production and it's going to hit by hit by thousands of users. And that is going to find all those little edge cases and really tell you whether this works or not. But can stress testing help find some of that stuff before you push to production? Oh, absolutely. I mean, please, please don't mistake me. When I say that like production is is the final test. I don't mean to say that production is is the is the most valuable test. All testing is valuable. Like all all means of finding evidence is is valuable. In I in the case, all the code you write is just bug free. It doesn't need to be tested. <laughs> that's right. Actually, that's that. That's just the fastest right. forward thing. But other people, other other programmers, <laughs> I've heard of this may be true for. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got this friend uh, who, in this in this case, um, I feel that the stress testing is is a critical thing for us to make decisions for for something like instrumental, because we don't have a um, we don't have the user base necessarily right now to be able to do things like well you know we'll deploy we'll deploy this and we'll get a clear picture of whether or not this is able to this is able to expand based on we'll see a CPU drop or we'll see a data store utilization drop. We don't, we don't have the ability to actually see that right now with, uh, with the current users we've got. And it's dangerous for us to do that, to, to deploy things and actually see whether or not it's able to, it's able to scale as well because so much of our app is focused on providing uh, real-time, real-time metrics to people. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to deploy something that necessarily, you know, it's, it tests okay logically. Um, it seems all right, but in, in, in this particular case, the thing we deployed ends up halting up your metrics by about two minutes. You know, you see, you see a longer delay before things start showing up on your graphs or you start to see a dip because we ended up missing some metrics in the course of the deploy or something like that. Um, what do you use to do stress testing? What are some of your favorite tools? Actually, I really love, um, in the case of instrumental, we, we really use the hell out of Netcat. Um, and a little, a little bit of Netcat, Netcat and a little bit of Bash lets us actually just create a quick little while loop that absolutely separates your local CPU. <laughs> There's, I mean, creating like, you know, if we created a Ruby script or we created, you know, anything else, there'd be, There'd be extra dressing on top of that when all we really need to do is push strings at the network interface as fast as we possibly can. And Bash and Netcat is fantastic for that. And it will, will spin up like 
five or six different instances just running random different uh, keys, random values at a particular data at a, a particular data store slash collector pair. And we can then measure like what that looks like, like how bad is Mongo's lock looking? You know, how how much a lock occupation is there? How much CPU is the collector taking up? What's the memory growth? Are we seeing memory leaks? And we're seeing the best possible representation of a worst case scenario. You know, like tons of tons of data coming from many different sockets. Like that's that's our our, our nightmare scenario is having like many sockets, with lots of data that never let up. And when we can recreate that relatively easily just with batch scripts, it's great. It's great. You know, we don't have to we don't have to worry about creating complex tools to load test. I like that. I like the simplicity of it. It's really cool. We talked a little bit uh, before the podcast about two things that I found really interesting that I want to get into. The first is scaling by attrition. <laughs> So you could talk about that a little bit, and then we can get into some of the uh, skewing novel solutions is the other thing I really want to get into. But scaling by attrition, what what is that? Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, scaling by attrition is just it's it's a way to think about uh, way to think about your problem space. Um, your problem space, like when you start thinking about scaling in the first place, it's. You know, you, let's say theoretically, you know, you're you're considering you're considering your app, and you know that you need to scale to more users. You need to start thinking about like what's your actual problems. Um, what are the things that are actually causing you pain points? Uh, you know, are are you in a case where you know you 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 have slow response times, and you need to actually you, you feel that you need to supplant a whole whole pieces of your infrastructure. You need to add in, you know, you need to add Nginx because you heard it was fast. You need to, to add a new data store because you heard the data store was faster. And the, and those things are hard work. They take lots of time and they take testing to do right. When scaling by attrition is picking these small, easily winnable battles that have a measurable benefit to you, you know, it's, can you scale, you know, can you scale out by removing a feature? Then do that. You know, it's it, if you can get away with it, you should do it. it. Can you scale by, you know, caching the hell out of one particular action that alleviates the load on all your other write traffic? Then do that. Like, don't don't make big decisions. Make small decisions that get you to the point that you have enough breathing space to actually consider whether big decisions are going to benefit your app. Like scaling by attrition is is choosing to to fight the scaling battle, so to speak. Um, on lots of small, easy to win points to get you to the level where you're actually able to make architectural decisions that aren't made out of duress. Because those those decisions that are made of duress or made out of emergency are typically made poorly. Uh, they're made they're made to to make your life easier fast and then you find out, you know, a month later that you bought yourself, you know, a year's worth of technical debt, you know, thousands of dollars worth of, of obligation to you know to create new software to support this thing that you brought in right and it's it's painful it's 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 better to actually stick it out and fight the hard fight of of small problems so to speak i'm always surprised when i get brought into a new project and it's a couple of years old and they've thrown a couple of servers at it to make it run fast and then you start poking around in it and you realize they don't even have their tables all indexed properly for some of their like most common queries and just little things like that 
that's what you're talking about, right? Being able to like check those little things and win those battles in a few hours and, and scale up better. That, that's absolutely right. Like it's uh, you, uh, database indexes are, are a fantastic example because so often that's the case where it just wasn't indexed correctly, like or the query could be rewritten easily just to actually use the existing indexes, or maybe you didn't even need the data in that particular query. You know, maybe that thing doesn't need to happen. The query that you just made actually the data existed three lines above the, the data structure that you weren't looking at. Uh, all all those things can be done just with careful thought and choo choosing the choosing the right battle to win. Find finding the things that are actually problems and not trying to focus just on we need to make it faster. I like that you bring up the and it seems like a common theme that I'm a big fan of in what you're saying here tonight is simplicity. Don't accrue technical debt by going and adding complexity to your application, right? Absolutely that. I mean we I think that many, many programmers, many computer scientists are are can easily fall victim to adding complexity to the app because it it has the side effect of letting them do something cool. And and I I'll I'll never judge somebody harshly on that on that basis. I mean we all want to stuff. I want to add the, the latest data store. We all want to try out new things and new techniques, but it's we need to actually to, to recognize that urge and replace it with the recognition that, that what we're actually trying to do works sometimes. You know? Absolutely. So that this kind of bleeds into a skewing novel solutions. What do you mean when you say this? to avoid the novel solutions? Um, I, I think exactly that. Like, there's so many times that, uh, and and this is a criticism actually totally indicts me by, by virtue of giving it, giving this criticism. We, we so often appreciate novel solutions, cool hacks, and great algorithms, uh, things, that, things that are intellectually very interesting that, that may solve our problems. We want to use those things, and I want to use those things. Right, they're they're new shiny toys. Everybody wants to play with those, right? Absolutely, um, but because they're new, they're also new shiny problems. They're they're you know th this week's blog post about the the fantastic new cool thing is next year's this new cool thing considered dangerous blog post. You know, it's and dig dot com comes to mind again on this yeah. topic. Actually, those poor guys. <laughs> They've uh, they've been a good example to uh, learn from, but they with version four I think it was the their most recent one they went all NoSQL and you know very early technology and had tons of headaches from having done that, and then you look at the Facebook guys and they're on MySQL still and scaling that to unbelievable levels. That that's that's absolutely right, and I think that I I would never say that that you should things primarily because they're novel. I mean, it's uh, maybe the advice that you should avoid novel solutions isn't necessarily exactly right. It's, it's better to say that if you're going to adopt a solution, you should make damn sure that you understand it before you implement it. Using MySQL is using MySQL is an easy win because it's been vetted by so many people. It works in so many scenarios that it's you're given some amount of space to, you know, to make mistakes. You're you're allowed to use it because it, it's 
it's got a little bit of history behind it. A lot of people have already solved a lot of obvious problems with it. Using something like, you know, React, uh, Mongo, uh, something else like that, you're, you're going into unknown space and the onus is upon you to actually understand your tool better before you actually implement it. And, and it's, it's tough because you, those, those things are cool and they, they do solve a lot of really good problems. I mean, we're using MongoDB right now. And MongoDB is a, a fantastic tool, but it's also it's a great example of of a tool that a lot of people have jumped onto without understanding what it's really meant to be used for. Um, we're using MongoDB primarily because it's it's fantastic for for writes to uh, to a hot area. You know, if you're if you're constantly writing to to hot data, fantastic. It's it's a great tool for that. It, it could not be faster. Um, what about Redis? Did you guys evaluate that? Why oh, God. I, I, I love Redis. I'll absolutely use Redis. Um, so why Mongo over Redis for this? Uh, Mongo has a really, really nice um, update set. Uh, like uh, if I want to actually update, uh, update a hash or update members of a hash, um, I can do so atomically. Um, it's really nice for us because we actually store our time series data. Uh, as, a, as a hash where we actually say um, increment, uh, increment a count as some with, uh, for this particular minute in this particular window resolution. Uh, it's, it's really fantastic for that. Uh, Redis is really nice, but Redis is also, Redis errors on the side of exactitude and uh, um, it's not necessarily made to write fast as it is to honor the contract of the algorithm that that particular data structure Redis is, is presenting you with. It's still, it's a great tool. Um, it's not exactly what we need for what, what we would consider our, uh, our heavy data writes. We still use Redis for a lot of things. Um, we use Redis for, uh, we capture metric metadata in Redis. Um, but we don't use it for uh, for the bulk of our time series data. Gotcha. And so, the, uh, okay. I, I, I was going to add uh, that uh, the one thing that we, we actually have evaluated and we want to switch to, um, we just haven't yet because we've used every new technology under the sun for this project, um, is that uh, DynamoDB is actually looking pretty awesome. The Amazon one? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. new the the new uh, the new NoSQL stuff that they've been offering, and um, we'd like to switch to that. We've been in talks to actually um, consider using Mongo as a hot write data store, and then we actually push off data after a short period of time onto DynamoDB using the two in concert, hmm. because Mongo is just it's it's fantastic for for quick writes and using it for a temporary data store um, that we can move on to something longer term like DynamoDB. But, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're a small company, so we're picking our fights right now. Well, it sounds like <laughs> you guys have been able to play with a lot of different stuff. That's cool. Let's go back to Instrumental App for a minute. And this falls under what you were telling me was evidence-based decisions, right? Using something like Instrumental App? Yes, so um, you're collecting metrics, you're using those metrics to then make decisions on how you're going to change the code and, and tune your app, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so what I'm interested in is finding out, you've mentioned New Relic as well. Are there other great services out there that deserve a mention along with Instrumental App and New Relic? I would say that uh, anybody listening should should try out um, a lot of them. There's, um, there's Scout App, which is uh, a relatively decent app for, uh, for capturing server metrics. Um, Scout does a, a pretty decent job at actually letting you capture uh, memory usage, database load, lots of other things um, on, on a given server. It has, a, has some user interface issues, but it's still it's, it's relatively solid. Um, there's a lot of other apps that are in the same category as instrumental actually right now. Um, I don't think they're quite like instrumental to a degree. Uh, like they don't offer the uh, the same freedom that we offer necessarily to add metrics. But there's things like uh, Librato's metrics. Um, there's a Stat Hat. A lot of a lot of other people are recognizing the problem that we're seeing as well and trying to capture um, just generalized application data. And that's. It's absolutely worth it for uh, for anybody listening to actually check out some of those other apps and see uh, see how they're trying to solve the same problems we are. It's a uh, it's a large space to be in. There's a lot there's a lot of uh, a lot of demand for people to actually truly begin to start recording what their apps are doing. I think that. Uh, that what we're seeing right now to a degree is is the beginning of tool development, like actual real programmer tool development for web apps that we've been missing for so long. Um, yeah, it's the, having, exciting. Uh, you know, client-side developers, you know, uh, uh, people that work on, on local apps have had tools like debuggers and, and profilers and all sorts of tools to actually let them inspect the state of their processes for forever because there's, there's such a long heritage for that. But the you know we're seeing like the actual, the beginning of creating those tools for for web apps. We're being beginning to see people actually create what we need, what what web app developers need, um, which is truly seeing like the state of their application. I think that is an excellent note to end the podcast on. Chris, thanks for all the time you put into this. Not just the time during the podcast, but all answering all my questions and the emails back and forth over the last couple of days and really getting to dive into this with you. I appreciate it. I'm not happy to. Brandon, as always, it's been a pleasure. Oh, it's a good one, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Our next episode, just to tease this real quick, we're going to be talking about growing your web stack with Kyle Breger, the creator of uh, the recently acquired forest.com. So tune in for that. And thanks for listening. <laughs>